My very first memory of driving up to that abortion care facility in Mississippi was me driving this oversized extended SUV and all of these protesters gathering around this very large vehicle as I pull into the parking lot. That's Imayan Ibanga. She's a reporter for AJ+, one of Al Jazeera's digital outlets. And last year, she visited an abortion care facility in Mississippi for one of her reports. And then I pull in, they'd mistaken me for a patient, and immediately started filming me. There was so much noise. So it's not just them protesting, it's that the facility plays blaring, just like pop and rock music to drown out the protesters, at least one of whom had a bullhorn and it was like screaming. So it's like, you know, imagine hearing like 90s, no doubt, you know, like, but also someone saying like, God's law is given to us. This is totally against God. But then GPS is like, you've arrived. So it just, (laughs) it was so much going on at the same time. And for me, I just thought, how overwhelming must this be for anybody who is not coming here for work? I'm Kevin Hurton, and this is The Take. Imayan produced that report from Mississippi last autumn. But we're revisiting it now because the debate around abortion access is once again taking center stage at the United States Supreme Court. And with two new, openly anti-abortion judges on the bench, it's possible this summer's ruling could transform the future of abortion across the United States. Abortion has been legal in the country ever since a Supreme Court decision known as Roe v. Wade. But at the state level, there's an increasing patchwork of laws that restricts access so much that that landmark decision is almost irrelevant. Alabama's Republican Governor Kay Ivey signed into law the most restrictive abortion bill in the country. Missouri could become the first state in the nation with no abortion clinic. The state of Texas has stopped most abortions under a new statewide order to conserve medical supplies during the coronavirus pandemic. States are calling for a ban on abortion to ensure that all medical resources are devoted to treating patients with COVID-19. In this episode, we're going to talk about how these types of laws in the U.S. are systematically whittling away at women's right to choose. But before we get into that, we want to stay with Imayan for a minute. Because the women that she met in Mississippi are the people on the leading edge of this issue. These barriers to access end up impacting poor women most of all. I knew I wanted to take a look at abortion care and accessibility. And I wanted to know what happens when that accessibility is restricted, who it affects most, and why. So I chose Mississippi on purpose. I went there because it's a poor state with a high teen pregnancy rate because it's a state where the vast majority of pregnancies there are unintended because it's a state that's bordered by all these other states that also have similarly strict abortion laws. This is a nationwide issue, and Mississippi is a microcosm, an example of what's going on in the nation. Imayan spent days in Mississippi reporting this story. She spoke to protesters outside the abortion care facility, though none of them would talk on camera, and patients inside it. Velvet Johnson was a 26-year-old woman who, I think she was nine weeks and three days pregnant. It was really interesting to find someone who was willing to share not only her story, but her face and her name. It was her second abortion this year both times unexpected. And this is someone who did and does use contraception, all forms, you know. 
took birth control, used protection. Um, anytime we had unprotected sex, I actually took two Plan Bs instead of one. And then you're still? Still pregnant. Velvet's procedure at the Mississippi facility that day cost about $600. And remember, this was her second one. It's no small cost. Abortions are very expensive. Most of the people who receive them pay money out of pocket. Even in Velvet's case, the money that she paid to have that procedure done was the equivalent to one month's rent. I remember talking to her and I asked her, what could you do with that money? And she literally said, I'm paying my rent. Um, making sure I have groceries at home, making sure I have gas for work, making sure uh, this basic needs. Her basic necessities. That's what she's foregoing to get this procedure because she also didn't have health care at the time. Imagine paying a month of your rent for this one procedure. Then where's your rent money for that month or the next month or if you have some emergency? It's not just about whether or not people should or shouldn't have abortion access. It's how much money and finances play into all of these decisions from whether or not you have access to contraception to whether or not you can afford the procedure with or without health insurance. Finances also affect a patient's ability to take time off of work so they can drive to the facility. In many states, including Mississippi, abortion providers are so scarce that many patients have to drive hours to reach one. Other laws require them to wait up to 72 hours between the consultation and the actual procedure. That means even more time off of work, possibly money for a hotel. For women of limited means, these costs can make the procedure unattainable, even if it's still legal. Imayan asked Velvet what she would have done if she couldn't have made it to the facility. I honestly would have used a third party and obtained abortion pills to go through with the procedure. So even though I couldn't have came to a clinic, I honestly would have looked for outside sources. Her answer was the same answer that we see right now in places where abortion has been banned for 20 years. And guess what? Hashtag the Internet. She would have found a way to get what she needed to get. And so that's the thing that people often don't talk about in this discussion when they talk about limiting accessibility. Eliminating access is not going to eliminate the procedure. And yet, eliminating access seems to be exactly what many U.S. states are trying to do. Like Louisiana. It's a state in the South, and it has some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. One of those laws is now at the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll hear argument this morning, case 18-13-23, June Medical Services versus Russo, and the cross petition 18 This is a complicated case, so we've brought in Rebecca Reingold, an adjunct law professor at Georgetown University, to help break it down. So the case that's before the Supreme Court this summer is a case that involves a Louisiana law that was passed in 2014 that requires abortion providers to have admitting privileges to hospitals within 30 miles of the abortion centers where they provide services. Now, admitting privileges mean the abortion provider can quickly admit patients to the hospital closest to the facility in case of emergency. I I think most people would hear that law and they would say, "Okay, what's wrong with that? That doesn't sound unreasonable. 
Sure. But the law has been challenged by various plaintiffs, some doctors and some abortion clinics as being unconstitutional. The Supreme Court recently decided a case in 2016 called Whole Women's Health, in which it considered a very similar law that was passed in Texas. Texas's latest abortion law set up two major conditions. Doctors who provided abortions had to get admitting privileges at hospitals near their clinics. Which the Supreme Court found was unconstitutional because it was medically unnecessary and found not to provide any medical benefits for abortion patients. You know, I lived in Texas when the 2013 Texas law came down. And I followed the case and I covered this issue and talk about deja vu. This feels like it's the exact same story just happening twice. Absolutely. Since the law was enacted, half of the abortion clinics in Texas have closed. The New York Times notes women have had to wait longer to get appointments. 25% of the state's women, that's about 1.5 million people, would have to travel over 100 miles to a qualifying clinic. Fast forward to the case in court right now. And the lawyers arguing against the Louisiana law brought up the Texas case in the first line of their opening argument. The Louisiana law at issue here, Act 620, is identical to the Texas law and was expressly modeled on it. Just four years ago, the court held in Whole Woman's Health that the Texas They basically said, you, Supreme Court, you've already decided this kind of restriction is not okay. I think a lot of people were surprised that this case ended up before the Supreme Court. The state of Louisiana is arguing that this credentialing requirement will make it safer for women when accessing abortion services, but there's really no evidence to show that that's the case. If there's any kind of complication during an abortion procedure, women will have access to a hospital regardless of whether or not their doctor has admitting privileges to that hospital. During this Supreme Court hearing, there were several moments when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is famously supportive of a woman's right to choose, questioned the logic behind the Louisiana law. Most of these abortions don't have any complications and the patient never gets near a hospital. But if she needs a hospital, it will be her local hospital, not something 30 miles from the clinic, which does have no necessary relationship to where she lives. And there was this tense interaction between Justice Elena Kagan and one of Louisiana's lawyers. Is it right that there is evidence in the record that Hope Clinic has served over 3,000 women annually for 23 years, so that's around 70,000 women, and has transferred only four patients ever to a hospital? And there is evidence in the record that they really don't know that that's an accurate rate because they don't track their complications. They really don't know what their numbers are. So they, well, they testified know, they to that. They know whether they... they've transferred women to a hospital, and it's four. I mean, I don't know of a medical procedure where it's lower than that of any kind. Justice Kagan, it's four that they know of. So if there was no pressing medical need for this admitting privileges law in Louisiana and before that in Texas, where does this legislation come from? Well, to answer that, we need to talk about Roe v. Wade itself, the landmark Supreme Court ruling from 1973. 
The Supreme Court today legalized abortions. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. The nine justices made abortion largely a private matter and ordered the states to make no laws forbidding it, except possibly during the final months, and for the benefit of the mother's health alone. So Roe versus Wade held that the U.S. Constitution protects the right to abortion under its 14th Amendment's right to privacy. So it says the right of personal privacy includes the abortion decision. At the same time, they also acknowledge that there is an important need to balance women's right to an abortion with states' interest in protecting potential life and also safeguarding women's health as a pregnancy progresses. A lot of folks think that Roe v. Wade triggered a backlash because states responded by finding ways to restrict abortion that somehow didn't violate that right. Essentially, state lawmakers that disagree with Roe v. Wade now exploit the loophole in the court's ruling. Sure, they can't ban abortion outright, but they can make it really, really hard to access. Georgia today joined a growing number of states that have made it illegal to have an abortion once a heartbeat is detected in the womb. In 2019 alone, six states passed laws like that one, banning abortion when a fetal heartbeat can be heard. That can be as early as six weeks before many women even know they're pregnant. These laws have become so common that there's an acronym for them, TRAP laws. So TRAP laws are targeted regulations of abortion providers. And basically what they are are laws that require professionals and institutions to meet a higher standard than is medically necessary to ensure the safety and health of their patients. And we've seen many of these laws throughout the country. With the stroke of Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant's pen, it is law. The heartbeat bill becomes law. Lawmakers in Missouri have become the latest to pass a restrictive abortion ban. The bill would outlaw abortion after eight weeks when a fetal heartbeat is detected. Ohio lawmakers have passed an anti-abortion rights bill that's been called one of the nation's most restrictive abortion laws. Consistently, the Supreme Court has held that these laws are unconstitutional because they basically treat abortion services unlike other medical procedures. They set higher standards than you would see for other comparable or even more dangerous medical procedures. Still, dozens of states have trap laws on the books, and that's forced a lot of facilities to close. At least 11 million women in the United States live more than an hour's drive from an abortion provider. When a law does go to court, like the Louisiana law in question now, the judges have to assess something called the undue burden standard. There's a case that the Supreme Court decided in 1992 called Planned Parenthood versus Casey that basically said that states cannot place substantial obstacles in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. It's what's called the undue burden standard. What's at issue in June Medical Services is exactly what constitutes an undue burden. Will the court uphold the standard that it put in place in Whole Women's Health? That was the 2016 Supreme Court case about the Texas law? Or will it choose to adopt a slightly different interpretation of that standard? When the admitting privileges law was passed in 2014, Louisiana had five abortion clinics and six abortion providers total for the entire state. What the plaintiffs in this case anticipate is that if this law is upheld as constitutional, there will be one abortion clinic left and one abortion provider left. 
I was tempted to ask Rebecca how she thinks the Supreme Court will rule in a few weeks. But the truth is, abortion cases are often tough ones to predict. How the jurisprudence has evolved has been dependent on the composition of the Supreme Court in a given moment. So here's the composition of the Supreme Court at this given moment. The four liberal judges, that includes the three women on the bench, voted four years ago against the Texas Admitting Privileges Law. They're expected to do the same now. Then, there are the four generally conservative judges, including President Donald Trump's two appointees, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. This is the first abortion case they'll preside over. And in the middle, there's Chief Justice John Roberts. He often leads conservative, but during the March hearings for this case, Roberts seemed unsure. He asked a lot of questions to figure out how, if at all, this case was different from the Texas one. Do you agree that the benefits inquiry um, under the law is going to be the same in every case, regardless of which state we're talking about? Abortion activists are hoping Roberts will side with precedent, saying the Supreme Court already ruled on this issue and that decision must stand. If that doesn't happen and Louisiana wins, that will mean big changes. So if the Supreme Court decides that the law is constitutional, some estimate that abortion access would be drastically reduced for thousands of women in the state of Louisiana. And the Guttmacher Institute just released a report indicating that 15 states are in a position to move very swiftly to enact similar admitting privileges requirements that would similarly reduce abortion access in those states. But it also goes a step further because a new interpretation of the undue burden standard wouldn't just apply to admitting privileges requirements. It would allow for the Supreme Court to uphold more restrictive abortion regulations, and that would further reduce women's access to abortion services across the country. In your research, have you found that states or even countries that restrict or make abortion illegal that there are actually fewer abortions? Women continue to seek abortions regardless. They just do it under less safe circumstances and put their lives and health in jeopardy in the process. And yet we've seen that all over the world. Much of Latin America has similar laws to El Salvador's, and according to the World Health Organization, the region has the highest number of unsafe abortions in the world. Seven women die daily from unsafe abortions in Kenya. Uh, There are multiple causes for this, um, including restrictions in the law for safe abortion. India has one of the more comprehensive laws regarding a woman's right to abortion. Dr. Noza Sharia, a gynecologist, says the law was passed to save women's lives. That's such an important distinction, because if the goal is to reduce the number of abortions, making it illegal and restricting access isn't necessarily the way to do it. What are some of the ways to do it? There are a couple of ways. One is to improve comprehensive sexuality education, which we know is not always science-based, not always grounded in human rights principles, gender equality, et cetera. And a second way is to increase access to and insurance coverage of contraception. When women don't have access to contraception, they're more likely to have unintended pregnancies and find themselves in a situation where they may need to access an abortion. We heard earlier from a patient Amayan interviewed, her name is Velvet Johnson, who said that if she couldn't get an abortion in her state, she'd have to find a way to get care. Even though I couldn't have came to a clinic, I honestly would have looked for outside sources. 
she wouldn't have just given up on getting an abortion. Now, what legal options would you, you say she has access to? There are very few legal options available to someone in, in that set of circumstances. What tends to happen is that women have to travel long distances and pay more for abortion services. And not all women are able to do that. Wealthier, more privileged women will be able to travel further and pay more for abortion services. They'll be able to leave their states if necessary. But women who are poor live in rural communities, women of color, those are the ones who will find it hard and maybe impossible to access abortion services. So what that means is that ultimately women who are already marginalized and underserved will bear the primary burden of abortion restrictions with devastating consequences for their health, their well-being, and their dignity. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilvey, Dina Kisba, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Kevin Hurton. Alex Roldan is The Take's sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>